0: In case you weren't here last week, we began a new sermon series on the gospel of John. Uh, we saw quickly that John's purpose in writing this gospel was found in chapter 20. Verse 31 says this, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that's his aim. So John, is, he's trying to prove to his audience that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, that he is truly the Son of God. And this morning, John will focus his attention on G- Jesus being the Christ, this, this anointed one. Um, I know Easter is a few weeks away, um, but this is going to be your pre-Easter sermon. I mean, I could preach this again on Easter. I mean, it's just so full of, of um, death, resurrection, like it's beautiful what Jesus is Um, join here. But it just so happens that our Easter text this year falls on John 3. I mean, um, I don't know how much more perfect you can get a John 3 Easter sermon. So I I wish I could say that it was because of my great planning. It just happens to work out that way. So this morning, we're going to look at Jesus as this anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah. Um, This was another name for the promised child from Genesis chapter 3. The shall would be the one that would come and redeem the world. Last week, we saw John declaring that Jesus was the word and that the word became flesh and dwelt among men. This week, we get to see John the Baptist, or as we've seen um, last week, John the witness, bearing witness about Jesus. If Jesus is the word, then John is a voice pointing people to Jesus. Our passage today is the second half of chapter one. So we finished off last week to verse 18. We're going to go 19 to 51. So let me pray for our time in God's word. Um, as we look at a picture of the Christian life, I want to also pray for Nam, for Andrew and Emily. Father, this morning we are um, just in awe of what you're doing around the world. Um right now we're just... Um, sitting or standing on a big ball that's full of people you've created in your image. We just watched a video from from Poland um, from one of our members who was here last week and um, now is around the world. And so we want to lift up Andrew and Emily and Kit. I pray, Lord, that you would use them in in a mighty way. Pray for their team, for chemistry, for unity. Lord, we're thankful for the North American Mission Board. Just all the church planting efforts, um, all the um, disaster relief efforts that they're many times first ones on the scene when a city is hurting. So, Lord, we pray for them, pray for the leadership. I want to pray for Kevin Azell as he's leading. The North American Mission Board, pray you give him wisdom, discernment. Lord, this morning, as we look at your word, I pray that you would uh, give us ears to hear from you, that we would have eyes to see how beautiful your word is. Lord, may we marvel what you've done for us, that you would send your very best, that he lay down his life for us. Lord, may we never get over that truth. So Lord, give us the ears to hear, eyes to see. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. So as we walk through this passage, I want us to see four movements. And these four movements, they paint a perfect picture of what a Christian life should look like. Um, and they're separated in the text. You'll see, it'll say the next day, the next day, the next day. So you'll see these kind of divisions for us. And so the first movement we see is just out of the get-go with with this is is to deny yourself. Uh, That's one of the first things you do um, in the Christian life is to deny yourself. We find this in verses 19 through 28. So let's read that together. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So here in chapter 1, we're introduced to some religious leaders. You're going to see these guys all throughout John's gospel. Uh, These religious leaders, they've, they've been trained to be on the lookout for who is this Christ, this Messiah. And they begin to hear buzz about this man named John. So we see in verse 19 that they were sent to conduct an interview. And they asked John, who are you? Your answer to this question says so much about your worldview. So who are you? Now, there are many ways that you could answer that. You could start with your name. Hi, my name's Adam. At least tells them a name. Um, Or maybe in certain situations, you might start with your career or a title. Like when Matt Justice, I don't know if he's here this morning, they're going on celebrating their anniversary when Matt knocks on the door and, and, and hears, who is it? I'm guessing Matt doesn't say, it's Matt, open the door. <laughs> it would probably be more beneficial for Matt to say, it's Officer Justice. I need you to open this door. But I find John's answer quite refreshing. And I think it gives us a, a picture into the life of a Christian. So listen, John, we, we've been sent here to find out who you are. There's a lot of hype surrounding you and your ministry. Quite frankly, you're making a lot of really important people really nervous. Who, who are you? <laughs> His answer is, I'm not the Christ. I mean, who, who answers this way? Hey, man, what, what's your name? Well, it's not Tim. <laughs> like, no. John identifies with who he is not. He denies himself. Before you can know who you are, you need to know who you are not. You are not God. I am not God. The world does not revolve around us. We need to understand that. John knows his place. Now, he had every right to promote himself. He could have taken a little moment there just do a little brag. said, are, are you kidding me? You, you don't know who I am? My father is a priest. An angel appeared to my father and foretold about my birth. Could have said that. Could have said, now I know you guys haven't read Luke's gospel quite yet. But Jesus says, among those born of women, none is greater than John. He's talking about me, me, John. You want to know who I am? That's who I am. He had every chance to promote himself, but instead of promoting himself, he denies himself. I am not the Christ. You are not the Messiah. God doesn't need us. The quicker you grasp that, the more joy and satisfaction you're going to have in this life. Now, he loves us, He desires us, but he does not need us. I love how Pastor Kevin DeYoung um, explains this idea of God needing us and how important we are. He says, There's no clearer example of this than the fact that we have to sleep. Have you noticed that? Like, we have to sleep. Some of you, you don't like to sleep. You want to just spend every hour busy, 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 busy. But at some point, your body shuts down and you have to sleep. The young says that, you know, he just laughs at that, that that we have to sleep. It's like God's way of showing us, I don't need you. We spend a third of our lives, well, I shouldn't say that for everybody. Most of us spend a third of our lives sleeping. The young says that God forces our bodies to need rest just so we realize that God can still keep the world going while we are asleep. It's like every morning you wake up, God could just whisper to us, hey, good morning. It's me, God. Can you believe the world is still going on while you were in bed? I kept it all together. It's amazing. I actually didn't need you right now. So get up, enjoy your day. I've got this. See, it's possible that some of you struggle to believe in Jesus because you are still believing in yourself. John here, right out of the gate, shows us that we must deny ourselves. That is the first movement. The second movement we find in this chapter is John testifying. He's making much of Jesus. Look down at verses 29 through 34. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed uh, to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. So this is talking about his baptism that we see a little more clearly um, in um, the Synoptic Gospels. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. So we know from the end of chapter 2 that this passage takes place just, just days before the Passover celebration. Thousands upon thousands of Jews would come to Jerusalem every year to celebrate this sacred occasion. The focus of the Passover celebration was the sacrifice of a lamb, which would serve as a reminder of God's deliverance of Israel from captivity in Egypt. Um, Exodus 12 records this first Passover. So if you're not familiar, maybe you're new to the Bible, go home, read Exodus, read Exodus 12. You'll learn about Egypt, the 10 plagues, And so the Passover was the 10th plague in Egypt. For the 10th plague, God commanded each family to choose a lamb. The lamb was to be without blemish, to kill it and wipe its blood on the doorpost of their home. God was going to, to send a destroyer and bring death to every home except for those with the blood over the doorposts. Any home where blood covers the door would be passed over, hence the name Passover. So every year during Passover, the Jews would celebrate the Lord's faithfulness that he delivered them from slavery. So every year, this was like you know, how we celebrate Easter and Christmas. Every year, the Jews would celebrate Passover, and they would have this Passover meal. And they'd have these different elements that would remind them of what God has done that he passed over them, he delivered them from this bondage. So we need to remember, though, that, that John the Baptist, you know, being a Jew, he would have known about Passover. Also, we need to understand that John was probably an expert on sheep and lambs. He, he wasn't a shepherd, he didn't grow up in that kind of home, but his father was a priest. The priest was the one who you would bring your sacrifice to. So John would have grown up in a home, seeing dad coming home from work probably every day, covered with you know some kind of blood on his garments. Um, the priest would examine the lamb that you would bring and make sure that it met the qualifications of a lamb without blemish. Make sure it wasn't you know um, didn't have any uh, cuts or scars, wounds. So John would have probably have known what a lamb without blemish would look like. So that's John as a child growing up in a home, seeing his dad, probably, you know, sacrificing thousands of lambs over his lifetime. Um, fast forward several years, John is now probably 30 years old, Passover at hand, seeing Jesus, and John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's something in his mind here. Passover, growing up in a priest's home, Lamb of God. There's so much to unpack. What's so fascinating about this scene is we see Jesus coming to John. Now, why is that so significant? Well, typically what would happen is the one who had committed the sin would be the one responsible for bringing the sacrifice to the priest. You, you sin against someone, to make atonement for that sin, you would bring a lamb to the priest, and he would examine it. Or if you didn't have a lamb, you could, give, you could pay him for uh, a lamb that he would have there that would meet those qualifications, and he would make the sacrifice to cover that, that sin. But this is interesting. Who, who's bringing the lamb in this In this setting, who's bringing the lamb to be sacrificed? Here's John, behold, the lamb of God. So who's bringing the lamb? Well, God was. Now why would God need to bring a sacrifice? Did he need to be forgiven for some wrong he'd committed? Absolutely not. This was God himself offering the Passover lamb. He was shown the world that just as he had delivered his people from physical bondage by the blood of the lamb in Egypt, he was now going to deliver his people from spiritual bondage by the blood of the lamb. God was offering his lamb as a substitute. We should have paid the price for our own sin. But God provided a way of escape. He sent a lamb who could perfectly and completely pay the penalty for our sin. Jesus, being the Lamb of God, he died in our place for our sin. Notice here, he's simply not a Lamb of God, but he's the Lamb of God. Only through Jesus can we find forgiveness for our sin. And this is not the kind of Messiah that many Jews were looking for. Like these religious leaders who had gathered, they were looking for Messiah, they were looking for the Christ, But this is not the kind of Messiah they were looking for. The majority of Jews were looking for a Messiah that would free them from their enemy. But that enemy wasn't their sin. That that enemy was Rome. They wanted this military leader, conqueror, kind of like a King David who would reign and rule and Israel would have peace. But the first coming of Christ wasn't to wage war against the Romans. The first coming of Christ was to was about raging a war against our real enemy, sin and death. He came to defeat Satan and his principalities. It's been said that before Jesus would come as a conquering leader, he had to first come as a crucified lamb. Before we see the Lion of Judah reigning on his throne, we first must see the Lamb of God being led to the slaughter. This is what we see in Revelation 5. I'm sure all of you remember that. Great Revelation series we went through last year. I'm sure all of you remember chapter 5, right? Well, here's chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders uh, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Now, remember, the John who's writing this Revelation, the same John who's writing the Gospels in front of you, and here he's seeing, these living creatures, elders, voice of many angels, myriads and myriads of thousands of thousands sing loud voice. Worthy is the Lamb, the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The Lamb who knew no sin became our sin. Theologically, this is called the substitutionary atonement of Christ. This is a primary doctrine for Christianity. It's so important. But today, like so many other parts of Orthodox Christianity, this doctrine is being challenged. It's being shoved out. We don't like to talk about it. Uh, The elders, we just finished reading a book uh, together called Another Gospel by Alyssa Childers. Great book. Encourage you to read it if you're looking for a good book. It's called Another Gospel. The book is about the dangers of progressive Christianity. So there's a push among some who claim Christ to do away with the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. Let me highlight some of this kind of thinking from an article uh, written by the Reverend Dr. Jeffrey France. The article is is titled, Beyond Atonement Theology, Letting Go of the Mantra, Jesus Died for Our Sins. Okay, and this is written by the Reverend Doctor. Okay? So he's educated, studied, he's actually, he's he's taught, um, he's a retired pastor now, praise the Lord for that. (laughs) But... Here's his article on letting go of the mantra, Jesus died for our sins. And I'm just taking bits of this. Um, It says, the historical roots of the problem, the problem you'll see is that this thing called the substitutionary atonement. So the historical roots of the problem, substitutionary atonement, date back to the middle of the second century, by which time Christianity had become almost exclusively Gentile movement. Gradually, these Gentile Christians began to read the Bible literally. Shame on them. Which was never the intent of the Jewish authors of both Hebrew and the Christian scriptures. Atonement theology is an outgrowth of literal reading of the creation stories in Genesis 1-3. through The story of Adam and Eve partaking of the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden was never intended to be read as a historical account. It is a beautiful, it's a beautifully crafted metaphorical narrative of creation and how humankind evolved in, into a self-conscious awareness of the reality of good and evil. The Bible never refers to Adam's disobedience as a fall. Again, it is a story. It is not history. Okay, so he says that the intent of the Jewish authors was never to read... These stories of Jewish literature, which he's calling the Old Testament, or the Christian literature, which we'd call the New Testament, we just put them all in one book together. Um, he says that those were never intended to be read literally. Um, I try because you know there are times where you don't read it literally, like Revelation. We, we obviously talked about how if it's you know if it's talking about word, if you're using words like like or as, you know, it's it's telling a story, the parables. Um, Those are just painting a picture for us. Um, The rule of thumb for me that I find so helpful is how you see the author's reading scripture is how you should read it. What I mean is this. It seems like Paul, who writes New Testament literature more than any other author in the New Testament, Paul believed in a literal historical Adam. I don't know how you can get around this. Romans chapter 5, Paul writes this, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Drop down a little bit to verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass, wonder what one trespass he's talking about. You don't need to go to seminary to figure this out. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. It sounds like Paul is literally taking Adam's sin as the fall of mankind. That one man's disobedience The many were made sinners. Here comes the substitution part, where the one man's obedience, cross, Christ crucified, resurrected, the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Sounds like substitutionary atonement to me. France continues, the resolution of this alleged fall was what came to be known as substitutionary atonement. Jesus dying on the cross was viewed as an atoning for sins of humankind. Again, this represents a stark misrepresentation of the Jewish Day of Atonement. Here's another sign of progressive Christianity. They will take other um, truths, like there is a Jewish Day of Atonement, but they will put it on par or above Scripture, he goes on, "To begin with, the idea of Jewish, uh, the idea of Jesus dying for our sins has the premise of creation and human origins all wrong. Please, enlighten us. According to Charles Darwin, in evolution theory, there was never any perfect creation. Human life emerged in a natural selection process taken over, taking over um, billions of years. Therefore, there could not have been a fall because there was nothing to fall from. Jesus has not come to rescue fallen sinners from a fall that never happened. Again, there was never any perfection um, from which to be corrupted. Darwin's revelations radically crushed the traditional Christian view of salvation. Human beings do not need to be saved from a fall that never happened, nor do they need to be rescued or redeemed. Simply put, the salvation story of traditional Christianity is ill-founded and needs to be reinterpreted. He gives you the answer in case you're wondering what the answer is. While salvation is alluded to in the gospel stories, which I find interesting, it's alluded to, it was never a major emphasis for Jesus or for the gospel writers. Rather than um, talk about salvation, Christianity should stress the importance of living lives of greater wholeness and ongoing personal transformation. That is what Jesus calls us to, and it is what the resurrection unveils for us. The resurrection is about the birth of a new awareness and a new consciousness that lead to lives of personal transformation. This transformation includes our passion and commitment to social and economic justice. There's your salvation. And so, there's the reason Jesus came and died so that our passion and commitment to social and economic justice can be transformed. I mean, you can just picture John the Baptist now, waiting his whole life, his purpose. Behold, the Lamb of God! who takes away the injustices of the world. The injustice of the world was not what he emphasized. John knew that all injustices were the fruit of sin. Do we want all injustices to to be taken away? Absolutely, but we have to start with the cause. The cause is sin. But if you don't believe the Bible is an inspired book written by men who spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, then progressive Christianity, it will tickle your ears. And you get on any social media platform, you listen to a lot of leaders, faith leaders in our country, this is the garbage that you're gonna find. I think of Paul when he writes this, for the time is coming when people will not endorse sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Behold, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. That is the message John the Baptist made his mantra, and that should be ours as well, which lead us to our third movement. The third movement in this passage is to make disciples. We deny ourselves, we make much of Jesus. We make disciples. This movement starts with the phrase "The next day" in verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, "Behold, the Lamb of God." The two disciples heard him and said, uh, heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, "What are you seeking?" And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it is about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him. And said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Notice yet again how humble John is. He's standing there with two of his disciples. And along comes Jesus, John's cousin. And John's disciples begin to get excited, and they begin to follow Jesus. Jesus then turns and sees them following him. And after a brief conversation... Jesus asked these disciples of John to follow him. Notice that John doesn't get all upset. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, 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 wait a minute. Those are are my disciples. I've spent a lot of time, a lot of hours with these guys. You can't just take my disciples. See, John is not about making his own disciples or starting his own movement. His aim in life is to point people to Jesus. There's these guys following him. He says, there's the Lamb of God. And they start following Jesus. And he's going, that's what you're supposed to do. If you've been listening to me, this is the whole point. But I can think um, how so many people and church-going people have this all backwards. Uh, there's some people I think they're, they're more concerned about how many people are coming to their church than they are concerned with how many disciples are in their church. You know, let's just grow. Let's just get real big. Listen, the goal of this church is not to be the largest church in Huntington. It's not. We're we're never going to be that because as soon as we get, and we're getting close, I think, now to where we're going to start another church. Like our goal is not to be the largest church. We're going to keep planting churches that plant churches. So, here's John just pushing people to Jesus, but there's so many people that want to just get a number. Let's get a crowd. Let's get all the hype. We're called to make disciples of Jesus. Disciples—it's such a big buzzword right now in the Christian circle. Um, a lot of people are writing books trying to find what a disciple is. That can get overcomplicated. What is a disciple? Uh, there are even people arguing whether a disciple is a more committed Christian than just a regular Christian. Like you're a Christian, then at some point you grow, and then you become a disciple. So we're trying to make people into disciples. So what, what is a disciple? Well, quite simply, just basic definition, a disciple is a learner. It's a student. So you have this rabbi, this teacher, It's going to have students. That's a disciple. It's someone who's going to follow them and then one day teach what was taught from that rabbi. When we make disciples, we are working to see people who do not follow Jesus come to follow him. That's called conversion. And then teaching them to faithfully follow Jesus in every area of their lives. That's called maturity or sanctification. That's what we're looking at. That a disciple is someone who follows what Jesus says in the Bible. Doesn't mean you do it perfectly, but when you don't do it perfectly, then you repent, like he tells you to do in the Bible. According to Nonmark's ministry, disciple making should be ordinary Christianity. We make it into like this elite thing. It's just ordinary Christianity. It's fundamental to do it. Like learning to count and say your alphabet in the natural realm there is scarcely any part of the Christian life disciple-making does not touch. Insofar as Christianity is a community of faith, it's disciple-making faith. There may be dozens of different paradigms flying around when you hear about discipling. Some people insist on reading a book, meeting for coffee, eating a meal, working out, All these may aid the work of discipling, but they are not a prerequisite nor the necessary substance of discipleship. Jesus never gave us a program to follow, but he did give us an example and a broad, far-reaching command to do it. Go to all nations, make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. And I will be with you. As a result, we have both great freedom and great burden for discipling. A lot of discipleship can simply happen when you're faithfully doing the one another's of the New Testament. We don't have to overcomplicate it. The fourth movement flows out of the third movement to make disciples. We are called to make disciples, fourth movement, who make disciples. Look at verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. Instead of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel said to him, "How do you know me?" Jesus answered him, "Before Philip called you, you were under when you were under the fig tree. I saw you." Nathaniel answered him, "Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel." And Jesus answered him, "Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe?" You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending, ascending and descending on the Son of Man. How awesome is this? Some argue that the rest of John's gospel is kind of the outline from this. So you're going to see these greater things than these. And so that's what John does. He begins to write all the great things that, that they witness. But I want you to notice here, we saw Andrew um, back in verse 41. He found his brother. And now we see Philip in verse 45. He found Nathanael. What if Andrew thought witnessing to his family was just too hard? It's hard, right? It's just so awkward to talk to someone you know so well about Jesus. What if Philip thought... I just need to keep praying for Nathaniel, thinking I'm sure someone else will invite him to follow Jesus. You know, I really don't want to mess up our, our friendship, make it all awkward. So I'm just going to keep praying. Somebody else will share the gospel with him. But notice the language used of both Andrew and Philip. Andrew found his brother. He went. He was active. Philip found Nathaniel, a friend. The word for found here is the exact same word used um, in the parable of the hundred sheep, where the one goes astray, Jesus leaves the 99, and he goes and he finds the one lost sheep. Same word used here in the parable of the field, you remember that parable where the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure um, hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field, what are you finding? What are you searching after, looking for? I mean, look at Andrew. He finds his brother, and what does he do next? He finds him, and then he brings him to Jesus. I I love that picture. You find someone, and you bring them to Jesus. Some people are quick to realize their need for Jesus. Others are not. Uh, we see both of those in these passage. John's disciples were quick to follow Jesus, weren't they? John just said, "Hey, look, there's the Lamb of God. Okay, I'm gone. I'm going to follow him." They were all in. It didn't take much for them. Um, some of you, you met people like this. Um, I remember doing some counseling several years ago. The guy who hit rock bottom. Um, I began to share the gospel with him during the first counseling session. Um, I, I didn't want to assume he was a believer, and so I just started sharing the gospel from um, Ephesians one and two. By the time I got to Ephesians two ten, talking about how he was created for these good works that God had prepared beforehand, he, he just said, "I've never heard anything like this." And I could just see that he was like moved. And I just said, "Hey, do you, you want to like just repent of sin and put your trust in Christ?" And he said, how, "How could I not after hearing that?" <laughs> like, okay, let's pray. Um, that, that's, all, that's the only time that's ever happened to me in all the times I've shared the gospel. That was it. For others, it takes years of praying and sharing the gospel. Um, I have shared the, uh, the gospel with my dad and, and another um, one of my friends countless times, and they still don't follow Jesus. Um, this is more similar to what we see with Nathaniel, Nathaniel was more of a skeptic. Nazareth? <laughs> well, I couldn't could come from Nazareth. Maybe some of you who grew up here in Cabo County, you go, Wayne County? Well, I could have good come out in Wayne County. But then when, then when Nathaniel encounters Jesus, he's absolutely blown away. And, and that, that's what we're called to do is just we're, we're trying to help people see the biblical Jesus, who he is. Rabbi, you you're the Son of God, you're the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. See, every person you meet is on a different journey with their faith. Some of you, you, you came to know Jesus at a young age, you grew up in church, you love Jesus early. Maybe you had some rough spots, teenage years, 20s, but you're back, you love the Lord. Some of you, it was much later, like it was in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, you came to know Christ. You had a different journey. Every person has a different journey. Listen, we're not called to save anyone. You can't. Salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit. You can't force salvation on anyone. We can't save anyone. But just like John, we're called to be faithful witnesses of what Jesus has done for the month of April um, I want us to step out of our comfort zones and go find someone God has put people in your life, I, I, I know that there's someone Lord, the Lord has placed in your life that he is that he is drawing to himself and he, and he's, he just needs someone to share the gospel with that person um, to help Prepare them, this person in your life, and to help prepare you for this encounter. Um, the North American Mission Board has sent us these prayer books called Who's Your One? Um, these are, we've done this in the past. This is a prayer journal, 30 days. And um, we have one for each of you. Um, they're around the building. They're in the lobby. When you first come in, there's some over here on this table. I think there's some in the back um, by the offering plate. But you basically just, um, it says day one, has a little verse you read, and then just a little prayer to pray and a place for you to put that person's name in the prayer, and just begin to pray for that person. And um, my prayer is that through this, you will be bold, and you will just take a risk, and you will just talk to that person about Jesus. Um, that you just won't pray for them and think somebody else, somebody else will do it. It's too, uh, it's too awkward. That you would share the gospel. The best story ever told, the greatest news ever, that Jesus, the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world. You get to share that with someone. Now, some of you, you've maybe never shared the gospel. You're like, I don't really know how to do that. Go to YouTube and type in three circles training. There's a great um, w- way um, to teach you how to share the gospel. It's called Three Circles. It's very simple. Um, so the youth group just went through this. I'm thankful for Michael's leadership, getting our youth group to already like, learn how to share the gospel. Um, so if you don't know how to share the gospel, Three Circles, I'll, I'll, I will walk you through that if you need some help. Um, so these booklets, again, they're all over the building. Just take one. We'll make sure that everybody has a chance to get one. Um, so... Deny yourself, make much of Christ, make disciples who make disciples. As we focus on the Lord's Supper this morning, I want us to focus on what the Scripture says, not what other writers say, but let's look at what the Bible says about the Lord's Supper, not what Darwin says about humanity. Let's just look at what Scripture says. Matthew's Gospel, we read Matthew 26, now, as they were eating, so they're getting ready to celebrate. This is the Passover meal, okay? So this is what they were getting ready to celebrate just days before. John sees Jesus coming to the Jordan River. This is three years later. They're eating. Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and we had given thanks He gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So you're coming today remembering that Jesus had to die. Something had to die, either you or him, for the penalty of sin. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross so that we could have life So as you come today, there's two stations, if you're a guest with us, you've never taken the Lord's Supper with us, um, just come up the outside, um, you'll have two cups stacked together, the bottom cup is the bread, Jesus says it's a reminder of his body, how it would be broken. The top cup represents his blood, which he says, um, his blood is the covenant, it's poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. So whenever you're ready, if you're a follower of Christ, you've trusted in him, whenever you're ready, you come and partake of the Lord's Supper.